Hello, and welcome to the October 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, with Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. First up this month, there was some notable news on the marriage equality front in September, but we actually already talked about the biggest news from our September issue in our last podcast. The rest of the month was almost more about what did not yet happen. Art, where do we stand? Where do we stand? Well, as we said last month uh, when we were recording the podcast, we talked about the Seventh Circuit's decision from Illinois, which is the lead story of our October issue. Uh, But uh, in addition, we have uh, picked up uh, some decisions. Uh, We have a state court decision in Louisiana. We have an important Arizona decision to discuss. We had oral arguments at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which look like a likely win for uh, uh, Idaho and Nevada. And uh, we have the disappointment that many people felt uh, during this first week in October when the Supreme Court on October 2nd, issued its first order list of the 2014-15 term, and the same-sex marriage cases were not on it. Now, that doesn't mean the end of the line for those cases. It just means that in working through the long list of petitions that accumulate over the summer, those 11 cert grants that were announced on October 2 were the first ones the court agreed upon. Uh, They're going to be convening for the term on Monday, October 6th, at which time they'll make more announcements on cert petitions. Uh, They'll be holding another conference later next week, and I think by the middle of October we'll have a clearer sense. Uh, There is a lot of speculation that they're waiting to see what the Sixth Circuit does. The Sixth Circuit held argument uh, beginning of August, so it's already two months, uh, which isn't a long time when a a federal uh, circuit court has a controversial case. They sometimes sit on them for months or even years. So we don't know when the Sixth Circuit will come out. If they do come out with an anti-marriage equality ruling, then we have a recent circuit split, yeah. and uh, that, I think, would light a fire under the Supreme Court to make Justice a decision. Justice Ginsburg has indicated this in some comments yes. a couple weeks ago. Uh, she spoke at the University of Minnesota Law School, and she said a circuit split would introduce much more urgency. She doesn't feel urgency now, uh, she said, with when all the courts are going the same way at the circuit level. But I think that overlooks the reality on the ground. There are people for whom the timing of these marriage decisions is crucial because of people who are uh, fatally ill, people who are expecting children. Uh, There are various reasons why uh, this isn't isn't, uh, an issue as to which lots of people are eager to just sit and wait. And since we do have marriage equality victories in three circuits, which are all on hold pending what the Supreme Court does, it would be nice if they would be mindful of the fact that people's lives are on hold. You know, this isn't just some uh, – as important as commercial disputes are, this isn't just some commercial dispute. This involves people's lives. Yeah. And but, meanwhile, she's married uh, she's, married, a cu- married one of her former clerks up more here in than New York. One. Yeah, yeah she, uh, Justice Ginsburg has conducted several uh, same-sex marriages. Retired Justice O'Connor has done one. And Justice Sotomayor, uh, Justice Kagan, Justice Kagan, Kagan, right? Justice Kagan did one. I'm waiting for Justice Scalia to do one. I think that would be a a memorable occasion. (laughs) But getting back to uh, the court decisions from this month, uh, and as we mentioned in our podcast last month, a federal district judge in uh, in 
of Louisiana. Louisiana. Martin Feldman, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1983, had been become the first federal district judge since last December, right. since the, uh, the Utah decision, which was our first win in the federal district courts. Uh, Justice Judge Feldman is the first to rule against us, and he. Uh, it's a, it's a sort of odd decision. We discussed it last month. Yep. Uh, and uh, it was very quickly contradicted by a state judge. Yes, uh, thankfully. Judge Edward B. Rubin of the uh, 15th Judicial District in Louisiana issued a ruling on September 22nd in the case of a, a lesbian couple who were seeking to uh, have a second parent adoption approved, and Louisiana doesn't allow those. Uh, they only allow joint adoptions by married couples in Louisiana. Uh, so they had uh, brought an action on the adoption, and it was expanded before the judge into a challenge to the marriage ban mm -hmm. in Louisiana because that was obviously implicated in the case. And the judge issued a sweeping final order, uh, the opinion on September 22, the final order on September 25, uh, granting the adoption, uh, stating that uh, the uh, Baker versus Nelson, which had been raised by the state as a barrier, uh, was not a barrier any longer, and uh, relying not only on the 14th Amendment, but also on the full faith and credit clause. And this is introducing a new element uh, into, the, into the equation. These women were married out of state, and uh, they were claiming that their marriage should be recognized for purposes of the second parent adoption. And uh, Judge Rubin agreed with them. And most courts that have been ruling on the marriage recognition issue have been treating it as an equal protection issue. Uh, they've been saying that if the state's laws on marriage recognition would recognize a different sex marriage contracted out of state, they have to have a good reason for not recognizing a same-sex marriage. Uh, and uh, judge, the judge in the Utah case, in fact, came up with this idea that there's constitutional protection for the right to stay married when you move from one state to another, uh, which I think was a somewhat new concept. Yeah. Uh, and now we have uh, a full faith and credit decision from Judge Rubin, which I think would be controversial uh, if only because scholars are divided over whether there is any full faith and credit requirement for a state to recognize a marriage that would violate its own public policies. Yeah. So uh, not certain how that would stand up. The state indicated that they were going to seek an appeal in the state Supreme Court bypassing the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Uh, so that has been filed, which means we now have two trial court decisions in Louisiana, both of which are pending on appeal. The uh, uh, federal district opinion has been uh, appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And consolidated, right? And consolidated for purposes of hearing with the Texas case. Yeah. And people may be thinking... The Texas case. Well, that was decided way back last winter. Yeah. But uh, the Attorney General of Texas, who was busy running for the Republican nomination for governor yeah. and now running for governor, he waited to the last possible moment to file his uh, appeal papers in the Fifth Circuit. So they weren't filed until the middle of the summer. And uh, then briefing follows that, and oral argument hadn't even been set yet. So uh, the suggestion was made in. Uh, the Louisiana case, by the appellant, no, not by the appellant, by the appellee, mm. because the appellant here are the plaintiffs, yep. since uh, the court ruled against marriage equality. So uh, the attorney general of Louisiana contacted the other side and said, would you have any objection if we asked the court to accelerate this 
so that we can have oral arguments at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and the rationale for that was that a decision by the Fifth Circuit in the Texas case will basically be a precedent that will decide the Louisiana case. Yeah. And Louisiana's attorney general says, I want to be able to argue on that. Yeah. I don't want to be preempted by Texas. Right. You know, I don't trust those Texans to make all the arguments that should be made. Uh, so they asked the court to expedite the briefing. They said, look, the briefs that we filed with the trial court on the motions for summary judgment can be repurposed for the appeal. Yeah. We're not going to have to change very much. Uh, so we don't need a lot of time. So the uh, circuit agreed. They're expediting the briefing. It's all going to be done in time, perhaps, for the November hearing dates of the court, which will be early in November. So we may have oral argument in the Fifth Circuit by November on the Texas and Louisiana cases. I don't think any kind of expediting is going on in the Eleventh Circuit on the Florida appeals. So uh, uncertain on that circuit. Uh, in the Tenth Circuit, we had an interesting situation, uh, as all our listeners are aware by now, I'm sure. The Tenth Circuit has already issued two marriage equality opinions in uh, the Utah and Oklahoma cases. A federal district judge in Colorado said, well, the Tenth Circuit's decided it, granted summary judgment to the plaintiffs. The attorney general decided to appeal, uh, I think mainly because that's – he figured that's the only way to get the uh, district court's decision stayed. Right. So he appealed, and then he filed a motion asking for an extension of time to file his brief. And – it's, it's the, the opinion that came out from the Tenth Circuit on that motion is sort of funny to read. It's the, the sense one gets from reading it is to saying, why are you doing this? We've already ruled on this question twice. Why is your case here? Uh, they said, sure, you know, have some extra time. But you know what? Your time to brief doesn't start to run until we revive this appeal. They said, we're putting this appeal on suspension. Why should we, why should we have anything to do with this appeal for now? We've already decided this twice. Petitions for cert are pending. Get back in touch with us after the Supreme Court decides what it's doing on the petitions, uh, which could create a very long extension of time yeah. for Attorney General John Southers in, in Colorado because yeah. what if the Supreme Court hypothetically decides to grant cert in the Fourth Circuit case and to just hold the other cert petitions yeah. pending the outcome? That's, that's how they handled the DOMA case mm -hmm. a few years ago. They had petitions – from two circuits and from several district courts, they granted the petition from the Second Circuit, and they just held the others, and they didn't deny them until after they'd announced the decision in the Windsor case. So uh, those things stayed on hold for uh, seven months from the time the uh, Windsor petition was granted. So who knows? Maybe Mr. Southers will never have to write this brief <laughs> yeah. and never have to argue this case. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, so the, the, that's where that stands. Yeah. Now, in addition, we had a very interesting decision from Arizona yeah. from uh, Judge John Sedwick, who is actually a federal district judge in Alaska who's sitting on Arizona cases by designation. They had a shortage of judges in Arizona, yeah. maybe because of the Senate's refusal to confirm judges. But for whatever reason— uh, I think didn't one of them get shot with Gabby Gifford that Yes, day? one of them was that's murdered, so there was a vacancy. <laughs> So uh, so Judge Sedwick was dispatched down to Arizona to uh, handle a docket down there, and he's been kept busy with LGBT issues because he already has been ruling in a case involving the state's withdrawal of domestic partnership benefits, and he granted a uh, preliminary injunction to keep the benefits going while the case is decided on the merits, and the Ninth Circuit approved that. Uh, so now he's also the uh, presiding judge in a bunch of marriage equality cases that have been consolidated before him. And one of them 
developed in a in a rather dramatic way. Uh, one of the parties actually died, and uh, the, the this was a recognition case. Uh, the, there's a combination of right to marry and right to recognition of marriage cases. And, and in this case, uh, the men had married out of state, and one of them uh, uh, was dying, which is the reason they you know they rushed to California once marriages became available again in California. And they managed to uh, get married just weeks before uh, the man died, uh, George Martinez. And his surviving uh, spouse, Fred McGuire, wanted to be listed on the death certificate mm-hmm. as the surviving spouse. They wanted him to be listed as married at the time of his death, uh, which can be very important for various federal and state benefits and, and just as a matter of dignity, human dignity and status. And uh, the state was refusing. Uh, he died in Arizona, and Arizona doesn't recognize the marriage. So uh, Lambda Legal, which is uh, representing plaintiffs in this case, mm-hmm. filed a motion with Judge Sedwick saying, can you just please order the Arizona officials to give us a death certificate which correctly identifies Mr. Martinez as married and Mr. McGuire as his surviving spouse, please? Mm-hmm. And the judge said, okay. Wow. So he issued a special order. It's very narrowly focused. It just goes to the to the Arizona official in charge of issuing the death certificates and says, you shall issue this death certificate. Uh, he said, I'm not prejudging the rest of the case, but... Uh, in his opinion, he makes it pretty clear which way he's leaning, that uh, since all the requirements for a injunctive relief here had been met, uh, he clearly thinks that the plaintiffs have a very strong case on the merits. And besides, uh, the Ninth Circuit will probably come out with an opinion uh, before Judge Sedwick has to rule on the merits here, and that would control him because Arizona is in the Ninth Circuit. All right. And, uh, of course, the Ninth Circuit oral argument uh, we should at least mention briefly, uh, happened at the beginning of September. Uh, the spin of the wheel in generating the panel was very pro-gay spin of the wheel, yeah. I would say. Uh, we had uh, three Democratic-appointed judges who were all pretty sympathetic. Some of them have written gay rights decisions and other... Including in, uh, striking down Prop yeah, 8. Yes, Judge, Judge Reinhardt yeah. wrote the opinion striking down Prop 8. Uh, I think Reinhardt was in, involved with the opinion... Uh, that came out last January on heightened scrutiny. Yeah. So uh, we likely was, have him. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, one of the press reports. Let's see if I can come up with this quickly. Uh, the the press report on the oral argument. Uh, right. The uh, the San Francisco legal newspaper, the Recorder, uh, said, quote, it will be one of the greatest upsets in legal history if the U.S. <laughs> Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit does not strike down Idaho's and Nevada's bans on same-sex marriage. Yeah. And uh, both states had hired the same attorney to represent them in the oral argument, uh, who would probably also represent them if the Ninth Circuit case went up to the Supreme Court. And uh, he got mixed up between the two states once, uh, and it was very interesting to listen to. But the sort of odd one was the Hawaii part because, uh, as uh, our listeners may recall, Hawaii passed a marriage equality law last year, and it went into effect in December. Uh, So what is Hawaii doing up there? And uh, the issue is that there was a federal lawsuit in Hawaii that the federal district judge had ruled against marriage equality. This was well before the Windsor case, that it was on appeal to the Ninth Circuit that after Windsor – uh, the governor of Hawaii took a look at Windsor and saw the way the wind was blowing and said to his legislature, you know, 
guys, we should pass a marriage equality law rather than have some court order us. You know, that way we can at least put together our own law the way we want it. Uh, so they passed the law. It sort of mooted the case. But there was an argument by some opponents of marriage equality in Hawaii that the legislature could not pass this law because of the Hawaii Marriage Amendment, which was passed in response to the litigation, uh, Bear versus Lewin, which later became Bear versus Mikey, which had precipitated all the hysteria back in the 1990s that led to the Defense of Marriage Act and all that kind of stuff. So they said Hawaii passed a marriage amendment. So how can the legislature pass a statute? And the answer is Hawaii's marriage amendment is unique among all the marriage. It wasn't a doma. It didn't say that marriage may only be between a man and a woman. It said only the legislature can decide whether same-sex couples can marry. Uh, and the legislature did. They yeah. passed a marriage equality law yeah. uh, a decade after they passed yeah. a law saying the opposite. Uh, but nonetheless, this is uh, pending. This litigation is pending in Hawaii. And so uh, the question was whether uh, the court should uh, preliminarily enjoin the operation of the Hawaii marriage equality law while this is being sorted out. And so this issue was up before the Ninth Circuit as well. Yeah. And uh, the Judges didn't seem all that interested in it. So we'll see what happens to that. I think if they write an opinion, maybe it'll be a separate short opinion on the Hawaii case. Uh, so that could come down at any time right. uh, from the Ninth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit could come down at any time. Uh, by the time people start listening to this podcast, it's possible we will, we will have heard from the Supreme Court since uh, at their opening session on October 6th, they're going to be announcing more cert decisions. Uh, so things are kind of up in the air yeah. on marriage equality. But uh, one scenario that people have speculated about is what if the court decides there's no need for us to get involved yet, so we'll deny the cert petitions in all the pending cases. In that case, the stays will get lifted, and we will have uh, several more states. I think it's 11 more states. 11 yeah. if you count the districts where uh, cases are pending within those circuits right. and assume that if uh, – the cert is denied on the merits, then the district courts will grant summary judgment to the yeah. plaintiffs in those cases. So we might end up uh, having marriage equality in uh, 30 states before the Supreme Court even addresses the issue. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a pipe dream. I think they're more likely to sit on these petitions until yeah. they decide which one to take because they're not going to duck the issue. Yeah. They, they're going to have to address the issue. And uh, if the Sixth Circuit doesn't rule against us, I think there's a, a possibility the Fifth Circuit will rule yeah. against us because they're a pretty conservative circuit. Yeah. So we'll it's see. It's interesting to wonder. We need four justices to grant cert, right. right? And it's interesting to think about what the strategy might be in the conference if the justices yeah. that probably aren't in favor of marriage equality, uh, is their strategy to grant cert or not grant cert? Or same with, I think everyone's trying to read yeah. probably Justice Kennedy's mind. Yeah. Uh, everyone, in, I, think, I think it's very strategic on this. You don't want to grant cert if you're going to lose on the merits. But if the person who's going to be the swing vote is being inscrutable about things. Yeah. And Justice, you know, it's, it's interesting. Justice Ginsburg is out there on the speaking circuit. And, she and does an she's, interview just about every day. Yeah, and she's, she's talking about marriage equality quite a bit, or at least she's answering questions yeah. uh, to, the, to the extent that some people have suggested that she should recuse herself if the case comes up, which I think is a bad idea. Yeah. But uh, Justice Kennedy has been mum. Yeah. He's not talking about it. Yeah. He's holding his counsel, which uh, he did before Windsor and he did before Lawrence. Yeah. So uh, he could go either way on this, although I think to be consistent with his decision in Windsor, 
he really should go for marriage equality. Uh, certainly that's what Justice Scalia charged him with in his dissenting opinion. Right. So we'll see. I would like to see that, that Scalia takes a pledge in favor of stare decisis and votes for marriage equality. That would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a big opinion out of the Third Circuit upholding New Jersey's ban on conversion therapy against First Amendment challenges. All right. We are back discussing a Third Circuit panel's decision to uphold New Jersey's ban on conversion therapy for minors. And I wrote this article this month, so I'm going to try to handle it here. Uh, The decision came down on September 11th. Uh, It was a unanimous three-judge panel of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. Uh, We had a mixture of judges. Uh, The judge who wrote the opinion, his name is D. Brooks Smith. Uh, He's actually a Republican appointee from George W. Bush. uh, And he sat on the panel with uh, Judge Thomas Vanaski, who was a President Obama appointee. Uh, and Dolores Sloviter, who's a senior judge appointed by uh, Jimmy Carter. Um, this case involved uh, the law signed by Governor Chris Christie in August of 2013, um, and it provides that a person who is licensed to provide professional counseling shall not negate, engage in sexual orientation change efforts with a person under 18 years of age. And uh, those efforts are defined as the practice of seeking to change a person's sexual orientation, including but not limited to efforts to change behaviors, gender identity, or gender expression, or to reduce or eliminate sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards a person of the same gender. Now, the statute doesn't have explicit penalties, but uh, licensed counselors expose, them, expose themselves to profi- professional discipline uh, for offering uh, sexual orientation change efforts to their clients. And isn't it possible that the existence of this statute as a statement of policy may also ground tort actions against practitioners? Thus, we, we actually have a, a case going on in New Jersey State Court uh, where some victims of SOCH yes. are suing their, yes. uh, their counselors. We talked about this in our last, one of our podcasts. Right. And, and, and that brings up a very, very interesting conflict of facts yeah. because in this case, uh, the plaintiffs who were challenging yeah. the statute said, this is entirely talk therapy. That's all it is. It's yeah. talk therapy. They dropped the footnote to that effect. And yet, as we saw in our prior discussion, uh, I think you read some stuff from, from that opinion, yeah. uh, which uh, had denied a motion uh, to limit the damage claim. And, and uh, the... A state trial judge had quoted extensively from the allegations of what exactly this therapy involved, and it wasn't just talk. Yeah. It was like having people disrobe and stand in circles and snap rubber bands against their wrists. Crazy stuff. I mean, it was not just all talk. Yeah. Uh, There was was conduct involved. But this court, for the purposes of the opinion, said, we're going to treat it as just talk. Yeah. And so we'll analyze it from that yeah. point of view. And so they yes. ended up... And the fact that, that uh, they said it was just talk uh, led to an important sort of point in the case. Uh, when this was before the district judge and also um, the sim- there was similar litigation in California over their statute that went, uh, went up to the Ninth Circuit, both the district court judge in New Jersey and the Ninth Circuit defined uh, what's going on here as conduct and not speech, uh, which has ramifications for whether or not it's... Uh, you know, if, if entitled to First Amendment freedom of speech uh, protection. Um, and the fact that they really defined it as purely talk therapy led the judges here on the Third Circuit to say, wait a minute, uh, I don't know that we agree that this is just uh, conduct. 
Um, and they cited a Supreme Court decision called uh, Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, which was a 2010 decision from the Supreme Court uh, involving giving uh, counseling, uh, professional counseling involving uh, talking to uh, terrorists, basically. Um, and they said that the Supreme Court rejected the proposition that professional counseling can be classified solely as conduct when it consists of communicating a message. Uh, notably, what the Supreme Court did not do was reclassify the c- communication as conduct based on the na- nature or function of what was communicated. Uh, so they've basically reached this conclusion that this is not a conduct case, but a speech case. Uh, and that sort of opened up the, the bigger question in the case as to what kind of protection is this kind of speech afforded. Um, and they decided that it was uh, entitled to intermediate scrutiny uh, because of the, there's a very deeply rooted uh, notion that uh, the states are allowed to regulate certain professions, uh, especially those that are related to mental and physical health. And we're talking about uh, people going to uh, get counseling, as a, uh, again, for this case. So there's an important state interest involved. Yes, right. Which is what you need for uh, surviving an intermediate scrutiny attack. Correct. Um, so they, 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 did, they did a long discussion in the case where they talked about how this is similar to the, the level of protection afforded to commercial speech, where the government has an interest in uh, protecting people from fraud and things like that. Uh, so the test is, uh, let me find it here, prohibitions of professional speech are constitutional only if they directly advance the state's interest in protecting its citizens from harmful or ineffective professional practices and are no more extensive than necessary to serve that interest. Uh, So they apply that test here to sexual orientation change efforts, uh, and they noted that the legislative record was filled with uh, uh, decades, uh, over the last few decades, a number of well-known, reputable uh, professional and scientific organizations have publicly condemned uh, the practice of conversion therapy, uh, expressing serious concerns about its potential to inflict harm. And therefore, the statute directly advances New Jersey's stated interest in protecting minor citizens from harmful professional practices. And then they looked at the second half of the test, and they said the plaintiffs have really offered no other suggestion as to how the legislature could have done this in a less restrictive manner. Uh, So they found it was a permissible prohibition of professional speech. And, uh, of course, the, uh, this is cause litigation, and cause litigation, they always seek Supreme Court review. Yeah. So their, uh, their attorney, uh, Matt Staver from Liberty Council, said we're going to file a cert petition. We're not yeah. even going to bother seeking on-bank review. Yeah. We'll just file a cert petition. Now, normally cert petitions are not uh, granted unless there's some kind of split in the lower courts. The Ninth Circuit and the Third Circuit have both upheld yep. against First Amendment challenges but on different theories. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose they're going to say uh, there's a theoretical split right. that has to be a sort of quasi-split, yes. which, which has to be resolved. Is it conduct or is it speech? Right. Uh, whether that will appeal to the Supreme Court as a case worthy of a national decision uh, is unknown. So far, there have only been two such statutes yep. adopted in California and New Jersey. Yep. Uh, now, the success of the litigation in terms of withstanding these challenges yep. Uh, may add some more fuel to the efforts to get more states. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a bill in New York. Yeah. There are bill, I think there's a bill in Illinois. Uh, and there are several states where it seems likely, based on the track record of passing gay rights legislation, that we're going to get social bans uh, in other states. Yeah. So perhaps the Supreme Court will see this as an issue that does require a national precedent. Yeah. Uh, so it could get up there. We might have two major 
LGBT issues before the Supreme Court this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same-sex marriage and attempts by counselors to talk people out of same-sex marriage. <laughs> All right. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a complicated Texas appeals court decision that two dads have a legal relationship with the son they had via surrogacy. We are back discussing the case of Berwick versus Wagner, a Texas appeals court decision involving two gay fathers and a son they had via surrogacy. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this is uh, a very interesting case. Uh, we have the full faith and credit clause uh, implicated here. We have family law principles. And we have a bottom line that people may find a bit uh, interesting because it seems in Texas, juries decide custody decisions. Oh, uh, it's very unusual. Yeah. In most family courts, it's considered it's more of an equitable than a legal decision. It's based more on the judges uh, exercising discretion. But in Texas, they put it to a jury, and a jury decided that the same-sex co-parent, as it were, should have primary custody, even though the other parent is the biological parent. Uh, and uh, therein hangs quite a tale. It's a it's a rather complicated tale. Uh, Jerry Berwick and Richard Wagner began their relationship back in 1994. Uh, they went to Canada in 2003 to get legally married. Canada was the first place in North America where you could get legally married. And uh, subsequently, they decided to have a kid together. And uh, surrogacy with same-sex couples is not uh, highly popular in Texas. So they went to California where surrogacy is very popular. Mm -hmm. And they decided to do gestational surrogacy. Uh, they found a married woman. Uh, she and her husband were willing uh, to participate in this. Uh, they found a donated egg, and uh, Mr. Berwick's sperm was used uh, to have a child. And while they were out in California doing this in 2005, uh, California had expanded their domestic partnership uh, statute to encompass virtually all the state law rights of marriage. So while they were there, they also registered as domestic partners. So they're, they're registered domestic partners in California. They were same-sex spouses in Canada, but they were residents of Texas, Houston, Texas. And uh, they had the child, and they did a proceeding in California, which has now become an important part of gay family planning in California. Uh, people who decide to have kids through donor insemination or surrogacy uh, make use of this. They file an action in the state court before the child is born getting a declaratory judgment that they are the intended co-parents and a directive to the hospital that uh, the birth certificate shall show them as the parents and that the gestational surrogate and her husband are not parents of the child. All of this is resolved in a judgment entered by a California court before the child is born. So they did this uh, proceeding, and the child was born. Uh, the child is referred to by initials by the court CBW, uh, so we have no idea what the C stands for, but B stands for Berwick and W stands for Wagner. And uh, so by agreement of the uh, of the parties, this was a child's name, and they were both listed on the birth certificate as legal parents. They come back to Texas. Everything's fine for a while. Then Mr. Berwick gets religion, uh, and there's some intimation in the court's opinion that uh, his mother and his uh, sister may have had a big role in influencing here, and he decided he isn't really gay. This life he's been living has been a mirage. And uh, he uh, breaks up with Wagner, although they continue living together for a while because they're raising this kid together. 
and uh, then he meets a woman through an online dating service, and he ultimately got married to the woman. Didn't have to get a divorce, even though they were married in Canada, because Texas doesn't recognize their marriage. So I guess they're still considered married in Canada, if they happen to wander up there. Uh, and they're still considered to be domestic partners in California. But in Texas, Mr. Berwick is now married to a woman. And, uh, but he is the legal father of CBW, but so is Mr. Wagner, mm -hmm. at least according to their birth certificate and a declaration by a California court. But what does that mean in Texas? Because now, as you can imagine, there's some controversy between Berwick and Wagner about who's going to raise this kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wagner was, uh, was a bit alarmed at how things were developing, although he was trying to maintain a good relationship with his ex-husband. I'm, I'm not sure how you would label this situation. As I said, it's complicated. So Wagner filed an action in uh, Texas, in Harris County, uh, Houston Court, called a suit affecting the parent-child relationship in which he sought a declaration from the court that the two men were jointly uh, the managing conservators, which is the uh, phraseology they use in Texas. So they would be co-custodial parents with equal parental rights. That's what he was seeking. Mm -hmm. But Berwick was not seeking that. Berwick uh, came into court and he said, well, hold on a minute. I am the child's biological father which means I am his only father as far as Texas law is concerned because in Texas, a child can only have one father at a time. And Texas does not recognize the uh, marriage from Canada. It doesn't recognize the domestic partnership from California. Therefore, I should be the managing conservator. And in fact, Mr. Wagner is a legal stranger to this child. Well, Mr. Wagner wasn't going to stand for that. So he brought a new proceeding. It seems under Texas law, uh, you can register a judgment concerning parental status from other states. Uh, so he took the California judgment and he took it into the Harris County Court in a separate proceeding and he registered it. Uh, so now, as a matter of Texas law, these two men are both recognized as parents. Well, Mr. Berwick begs to differ. <laughs> you know, and, and the cases get all sort of mixed up together, although uh, uh, Berwick first appealed the separate registration proceeding and the Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's uh, approval of the registration, and the Texas Supreme Court refused to review that. So now we're back in the Harris County Court in the original lawsuit that was filed by Wagner, and it goes to a jury trial. And uh, there was some drama during voir dire of the jurors because uh, the jurors were asked about their religious views about homosexuality, and would that affect their ability to decide the case, knowing that uh, one of the fathers is gay and the others is ex-gay. You know, would, would they be able to decide fairly? And several jurors uh, credit them for their honesty. They said, you know, I would have a really difficult time deciding that because of my deeply held religious views against homosexuality. Uh -huh. And so the judge uh, agreed to strike them for cause from the jury, which uh, gave Mr. Berwick one of his grounds for appeal later on. Uh, but uh, Berwick was also eager to get as often before this jury as possible the fact that he was the biological father. Mm. Because to him, that was the whole game. Mm -hmm. He said, biological parents have a constitutional right to decide who has contact with their children. You know, and uh, he, was, he was really firm on that, that Wagner was not a real father, that he was the real father. Mm -hmm. uh, and the judge uh, mainly kept that evidence out. Mm. 
which was another ground that Berwick was trying to appeal. He said the, he was excluding relevant evidence about my biological connection to the child. The uh, trial judge took the position that that's irrelevant because now that that California judgment has been registered, both men are legal parents. And as between two legal parents, it doesn't matter how you became a legal parent, whether through adoption, whether you're the genetic uh, parent, uh, no matter how you became a legal parent, once you're a legal parent, you are on equal grounds in a child custody case that's between legal parents. Right. The issue for the jury is not who is more of a parent than the other in terms of biology or the law. The issue for the jury is what is in the best interest of this child? Is it in the best interest of the child to do what Mr. Wagner originally asked for, designate the two men as uh, co-managing conservators? Or is it in the best interest of uh, the child to say uh, that Mr. Berwick is the sole father, or Mr. Wagner is the sole father, or that one has visitation and the other has custody. However the jury wants to do it, as long as there's substantial evidence in the record to support their decision, that's going to be what controls. So the jury heard all the evidence, and they decided that Mr. Wagner should be the sole managing conservator, which means he is the custodial parent. He is the primary maker of parental decisions about the child's upbringing, education, health care decisions, things of that sort. They said that Mr. Berwick can also be a conservator. Uh, they call it a possessory conservator. That means he's going to have visitation rights. But Mr. Wagner holds the trump cards. And a large part of that, uh, it seems, and, and the judge went into great detail in reviewing all the evidence that was before the jury, uh, because, after all, the Court of Appeals had to decide whether there was substantial evidence to support this result. Uh, they said, Berwick was hostile, confrontational, this is my kid, not your kid. It was clear that if you put him in the managing conservative position, he was going to do everything he could to exclude Wagner. Mm -hmm. Whereas Wagner's view was, we're both parents. I'm going to work as hard as I can to try to maintain an amicable relationship and be sure that this child knows both of his fathers I'm not going to say bad things about my former spouse who's now married to a woman and claims he isn't gay. You know, everything is for the best interest of the child. And so between those points of view, the jury naturally, since you've already screened out the people who had such strong religious objections, they couldn't be fair. Yeah. The remaining jurors said, okay, Wagner gets it. Yeah. And the Court of Appeals said, that's fine. Yeah. You know, just because Texas doesn't allow same-sex couples to marry, that's not relevant here. Yeah. This isn't about marriage. This is about child custody. Yeah. And under the full faith and credit clause, they said, a California court that had jurisdiction over the parties and that issued a decision consistent with California law, under the full faith and credit laws, a Texas court has to recognize that. And we have our own statute that authorizes the registration of those out-of-state uh, judicial decisions on custody. And so these are equal parents, and it's up to the jury, and the jury decided, and they had adequate evidence to make their decision. We don't second-guess. Uh, one other sort of little twist to the case, Berwick was seeking to get Wagner's name taken off the child's name. He wanted the child to just be CB, not CBW. And the court said, well, you know, in light of the way we've decided this case, clearly not. Yeah. But furthermore, he said, uh, that's the name that's registered on the birth certificate. It was put there with the agreement of both parents, yeah. including Berwick. Uh, and there has been no evidence presented that it would be in the best interest of the child to change his name. Yeah. Uh, the child is actually uh, not so young anymore. 
and the, the child was born in 2005, so we're talking about a, a kid who's almost 10 years old, yeah. uh, to change his name, especially to change his name now when he's going to be primarily living with Mr. Wagner. Yeah. You know, not likely, yeah. not bloody likely. So this is a very interesting uh, result. Uh, I don't know. Berwick may try to take it to the Texas Supreme Court, but I don't think it's likely that he would get it to the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, because it seems to be pretty clear, uh, you know, it's a jury verdict, there's substantial evidence, and uh, the r- legal reasoning throughout seems to be very carefully done by the Court of Appeal. And um, surprisingly, I mean, it seems like a good gay rights result out of Texas. So, yeah, uh, it is. Uh, it is. You well, know. you know, we, we also got a marriage equality win in the federal district right, right, court right. in Texas yep. uh, last uh, last winter. So uh, maybe the Texas courts are uh, moving, up to us. Yeah, moving in the right direction. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll take our last short break, and when we return, we'll sort of stay in the same vein for our Of Note segment, but we'll be discussing a new lawsuit filed by a lesbian claiming a sperm bank did not send her the correct order. All right, we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition. A white Ohio lesbian is suing an Illinois-based sperm bank, alleging that the company mistakenly gave her vials from an African-American donor, a fact that she has said made it difficult for her and her same-sex partner to raise their now two-year-old daughter in an all-white community. Can you tell us what happened, Art? Yeah, this is... Uh, this is uh it may come down to something as simple as someone mistaking a three for an eight. Yeah. So uh, what what happened is uh, Jennifer Cramblett and her partner wanted to have a kid through uh, donor insemination. They wanted anonymous uh, sperm. They consulted the Midwest Sperm Bank in Illinois, and I, I don't know how they do this, a catalog or something, but like they ordered by lot number. Yeah. And they wanted a donor whose sperm... Uh, when uh, used to uh, inseminate Cramlet and have a kid, uh, that the kid would at least somewhat resemble both women who are white. And uh, they thought that they had ordered, and they in fact had ordered, uh, sperm from a white donor, but there was a mix-up. The numbers looked similar. Uh, they, they sent the wrong vials of sperm, and it wasn't until after she became pregnant that they found out. And, and the way they found out is she was so delighted being pregnant that they decided, her partner decided, I want to be pregnant too, and we'll order some more sperm from the same donor so that the kids will be related. Yeah. You know? And uh, so they, they, they placed an order for the second, and then it was discovered that the wrong sperm had been sent in response to the first order, and they were notified. And they went ahead with the pregnancy. And uh, they have a, a charming little two-year-old girl now, but who is obviously a mixed-race girl. And, and they say, you know, we love her. We've bonded with her. We think she's terrific. You know, we're a family. But you know what? We think we're going to have to move. The, the community It's an all-white community. It's a little odd. She's like she's going to – when she goes to school, she's going to be the only black child. We really think – that we are entitled to damages here. Yeah. And so there, there are two theories of the case. One is wrongful birth, which I don't th- – I mean, you have a healthy child. Yeah. I think wrongful birth is kind of difficult. That's, wrongful birth is like you sue a physician who didn't tie your tubes correctly and you became pregnant by mistake or something. Yeah. And even those cases are, are tough to win. And the other theory is breach of warranty. <laughs> now, I have real problems here. Is sperm a good? Is this covered by the UCC? 
do we have an implied warranty of merchantability? Yeah. Uh, is there an express and it warranty? Worked. Well, is there an express warranty that the sperm will be uh, of the uh, racial background that was stated in the catalog when they placed the you know? But uh, is it appropriate to use UCC warranties in a case like this? Uh, is a sperm bank selling a good or are they providing a service? I mean, they're not doing the insemination, right? right. They're, they're storing the donated sperm and then they're sending it out in response to orders. So you could say it's sort of like a sale of a good. But I think people would find it very offensive to, to characterize sperm as goods. Uh, I mean, obviously, we have, we have statutes against baby selling. Right. But, you know, how that relates to this is another debate entirely. But uh, so I can tell you that the uh, Association of American Law Schools contracts professor listserv has been buzzing about this case ever since our students started sending us links to the story. Because <laughs> that's how most professors found out about it. Yeah. An email from a student sending a link to the story. That's how I found out about it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is very, very interesting. This yeah. one, uh, I think this is uh, – this could be an exam question in so many different courses. Yeah. Torts, contracts, family law. You know, I also wonder, I mean, there's going to be a time when this girl gets older and she perhaps learns about this case, and I think that's going to create a very awkward conversation. Oh, for I'm the sure mothers. that is. You know, mommy loves you. Both mommies love you. But you know what? That, that, that sperm bank did something very, very bad, and they should have to pay for it. <laughs> I hope that goes well. Um, all right. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars if there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter and at, at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in November.